program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone. Um, This is Mary Woods and today we have a really interesting um, show lined up for you. Our guest is Dr. E. Fuller-Torrey, who is a research psychiatrist specializing in schizophrenia and manic depressive illness. He is the founder of the Treatment Advocacy Center, and is, he is the executive director of the Stanley Medical Research Institute, which supports research on schizophrenia and manic depressive. Um, he has currently written a book called The Insanity Offense, How America's Failure to Treat the Seriously Mentally Ill Endangers Its Citizens. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Tori. Um, I could go on all for the whole hour about your accomplishments and what you've done to help folks with mental illness get the treatment that they need. Um, but I would like you to begin by sharing with us how you got interested in treating folks that have severe and persistent mental illness. Well, thank you for having me, Mary. It's a pleasure. Um, this has really been most of my career. Um, in large measure because my sister developed schizophrenia when she was 18 years old and, in fact, uh, had it for over 50 years. She recently died on it. Um, and so I became familiar very early on with not only with the disease but with the consequences of having a severe mental illness for the family and the fact that research on it seemed to be way behind the rest of medicine and the treatments that we had were not nearly as good as we needed. So when I went into medicine, psychiatry was one of the areas I considered, and then when I went to psychiatry, uh, I really decided to specialize in in these diseases, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, maybe you could start by enlightening our, our audience a little bit about, um, I guess some people would call the modernization of psychiatric treatment since the 1970s, other people, and you would um, argue that it's really been a failure rather than a success. And could you explain how did we end up deinstitutionalizing people? Well, what's happened since really starting in the early 1960s, the late 1950s, is we decided that people should not have to stay in the state mental hospitals, the asylums, uh, for long periods of time, so we emptied out the hospitals. However, what we failed to do was we failed to make sure these people got treatment once we had discharged them from the hospital. And for about half the people who we have uh, let out of the hospital, what we call it deinstitutionalized, uh, they've done pretty well. But the other half, uh, most of them have not done very well. They've ended up homeless. They've ended up in jails and prisons, often with misdemeanor charges in jails. Uh, they've ended up being victimized. Um, rarely, a few of them become violent. And so the consequences of our failing to make sure these people get treatment have been very severe. 
I think, I mean, from our our experience in New Hampshire, we've been fairly lucky in terms of um, having uh, legislation that supports people getting treatment. And I think we've been able to adopt an attitude of people have a right to treatment as well. And, and that, I think, gets lost in the whole um, rights of folks with mental illness. Well, you're right, and, and you're fortunate to be in New Hampshire. Um, uh, at one time, 15, 20 years ago, New Hampshire really had the best public psychiatric services in the United States, and, and it varies quite widely by state, I might add. Uh, all of the states over the last 10, 15 years have gone downhill, and uh, I, I can't really recommend any one state as having really good services at this point. But New Hampshire was out front. They had very good leadership at the state level, and they had some good community mental health centers. They had also an excellent state hospital, which I visited a couple of times, uh, better than most of the private hospitals in the United States. Uh, but unfortunately, some of these gains have been lost, and New Hampshire now is not as good as it was 15 years ago. Um, you've written a book called The, Insan- the Insanity Offense. Um, can you explain the title? Well, the insanity offense is kind of a play on the word of of what we use. We call it the insanity defense uh, when people are uh, have committed a crime, and we say that they're not responsible because of their mental illness. Uh, the insanity offense was a play on that word, and it it's really a rather grim. Uh, listing of all of the bad things that have happened by our failure to treat people once we let them out of the hospital and our failure to provide the community treatment that they need, the medication that they need to remain well in the community. So it goes into detail about the number of severely mentally ill people who have ended up homeless, uh, the number who are victimized, uh, the number who end up in jails and prisons, and these are problems that are increasing, and talks about the small number who have also become violent, almost always because they have not been treated. There is no evidence at all that people with severe mental illnesses are more violent if they're being treated. If they're not being treated, then indeed a small number can become violent, usually because of their uh, mental illness. In your book, there's a very compelling story about Malcolm Tate that I'd like you to share with our audience. Uh, I started this story and, and really got interested in the book because, and, and doing the book because of the Tate family. It's a case that I was aware of when it happened. And basically what happened is a, in, in North Carolina, a family, a poor family, had a severely mentally ill son um, who would not would not take treatment so that each time they had him hospitalized, he would respond and then stop his medicine when he left the hospital. And he became increasingly threatening to the family. Uh, he said he was going to kill his niece. Uh, he th- was threatening family members uh, and very severely threatening family members. And finally, uh, because they were very concerned that he was going to kill his niece, um, the mother and sister uh, jointly decided that their only solution was, in fact, to kill him. And so they did, in fact, do that. They were found, uh, uh, immediately found out, found guilty, and the daughter was sentenced to life in prison and then subsequently died in prison on it. Um, it's a very sad story, and uh, it really, to me, 
uh, epitomized the failure of the system, that this is a family who did everything they could to get services, to get help for the young man, uh, who was becoming increasingly violent and threatening, and so they were. They felt that their only solution was to kill him. I thought that was really a, a very, very sad commentary on how far downhill we've gone. Well, and it also speaks to how desperate families become. Oh, indeed. Uh, families, uh, families with people with severe mental illness, if they're not receiving treatment, uh, can be it can, it can be a major problem. They can be terrorized by them. Uh, and it's, it's a very, to, to, to put people with severe mental illnesses in a family and not being treated, um, some of them can cause a great deal of problems within the family. I think that um, one of the things that you, you talk a lot about in your book is about the criminal justice system and um, how they have really played a, a significant role in the homelessness that people experience and the victimization people experience when they thought they were doing the right thing. Um, could you kind of talk a little bit about how the criminal justice system has contributed to um, the state of our mental health care? Well, in fact, the criminal justice system, the jails and prisons, are now our primary uh, mental hospitals. They're de facto the 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 largest concentration of mentally ill people who are institutionalized in the United States are in jails and prisons. Uh, the largest de facto mental hospital uh, in the United States is the Los Angeles County Jail and followed by the Cook County Jail in Chicago and Rikers Island Jail in New York. Uh, there is not a single county that I can identify in the United States now where there are as many mentally ill people in the county hospital as there is in the county jail. Uh, the the jails and prisons have become uh, really the primary mental health, uh, uh, mental illness uh, resource center. And of course, this this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Jails and prisons were not set up to take care of people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, that's what hospitals were supposed to do. But the whole thing has been turned on its head. The whole thing is uh, is now backwards and uh, very big problems for the people who are running the jails. I have visited jails in about uh, 15 states, and I'm continuously impressed by the quality of the care that the people running the jails are trying to give mentally ill people, even though they're not trained to do so, um, with exceptions, of course. But by and large, they try very hard. But it's not supposed to be that way. You know, I think um, when when I think about New Hampshire and I think that we have a fairly progressive law when it comes to um, involuntarily committing someone who is a danger to themselves or others. But even with that, what a family has to go through to get somebody uh, to the point where they're sim- symptomatic enough to really be able to have the admission stick, the family really has to make a choice that's very painful. You know, it's oftentimes a family member has to put themselves at risk. Um, in order to um, get the law to work on their side. And um, and we're a little bit more progressive in New Hampshire. And I know some other states, uh, it's very strict in terms of the amount of time that you can go back for somebody's symptoms. Um, I think here in New Hampshire it's like six months, but I, that's rare. 
Uh, you're absolutely right, Marianne. It varies a great deal from state to state, and even within a state, especially large state, it may vary quite a bit from county to county. A lot of it depending on the judge. Some of the judges seem to understand this and recognize the fact that the person needs treatment. Others are very reluctant to commit someone unless they're a uh, uh, danger to themselves or others immediately. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions for Dr. Tory, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary, and today we have a great guest, Dr. E. Fuller Torrey, who is the founder of the Treatment Advocacy Center, and he's also the executive director of the Stanley Medical Research Institute. And we've been talking about um, mental illness, severe and persistent mental illness, and um, basically America's failure to treat the seriously mentally ill. And we've talked a little bit about how it endangers its citizens. Um, and before we talk about treatment, I think that um, one of the things that we should just highlight is that if people want to know um, what the standards are in their own state, how would they go about finding out, like if, 
if you if it's a family member and they they want to know what do I need to do to um, if my fa- my family member needs to be committed or my family member needs treatment and they won't get it, what are the resources available? That's a very good question, Mary. And the answer is there is a resource called the Treatment Advocacy Center. Uh, the website is www.treatmentadvocacycenter, all one word, treatmentadvocacycenter.org. Uh, that's an organization I helped start 11 years ago uh, in Arlington, Virginia. And on the website, we have a state-by-state analysis of what the laws are that are in, in, involved in committing people and also some individual information on each state. Uh, as I mentioned, the the... The commitment laws tend to vary a good deal by state and even be vary within the state depending on the judge that's involved on it. But on the website, www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org, uh, that information is there. How effective are mental health courts? Well, mental health courts are effective. Um, as you would guess, basically you're putting an individual with a severe mental illness in a situation where uh, they're told by a judge, uh, you can either take your medicine and follow the orders or go to jail. Uh, most people, that's not a tough decision uh, because jails are not very nice places. The fact that we have mental health courts and need mental health courts are really a measure of the failure of the system that we have out there. If we really had a system that worked, you wouldn't need mental health courts in the first place. But at this point in time, uh, mental health courts are one of the options that have been developed very widely, uh, mostly in the last five years, and they really work. You know, one of the interesting things about working with folks that have uh, major brain disease, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, is often they don't—they're not able to see their own symptoms, or they're not e- able to perceive that what they're experiencing is abnormal. And sometimes it's characteristic. Uh, people say, "Well, they're in denial," but there are there's another way to look at that as well. Uh, that's a very important observation, and it's very important that families understand that. We understand now that for people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, that first of all, these are brain diseases. We know the brain diseases. Secondly, in about half of the cases, it affects the part of the brain that we use to think about ourselves. And in those instances, the person is unable to understand, unable to appreciate the fact that he or she is ill. And therefore, when you say, won't you take your medicine, the answer is, why should I take my medicine? There's nothing wrong with me. And if you say, well, you're hearing voices, of course I'm hearing voices. They're being sent to me by the CIA or the KGB or whatever. They think that their experiences in their brain are real. And these are the people that are hardest to treat because they are not aware of their illness and will refuse to usually go along with a treatment system. These are the people who often need involuntary treatment because they will not accept treatment on their own. And what is that called? The name that we use is anisognosia, uh, a long neurological term. It's been known by neurologists for 100 years, and you see it sometimes in people who have strokes that affect this particular part of the brain, usually the right hemisphere, and it involves uh, an area of the parietal lobe. So it, it's, it's involvement of a very particular part of the brain that is involved in, in thinking about ourselves. The neurologists, as I say, have known about this for a long time. Psychiatrists have only recently discovered it. But it's a very important fact because these are the people, many of whom will never accept treatment voluntarily because they don't believe there's anything wrong with them. 
That's very hard to measure. I mean, it's not like we can do a blood test and say, okay, you have this. How do we educate um, lawyers and doctors and, and physicians and practitioners that, that this is a real and experience for folks? Well, it is involved education and in, including the kinds of things you're doing today on it. Um, and we are we are in the process of probably putting together some videos on this to help explain it as well. Um, it, it's a very important fact of life because it's one of the limiting factors that make it difficult to treat people with this disease. We do understand the, that it is part of a brain disease. We do understand the part of the brain that's evolved. And we do have, we don't have a blood test for it, but we do have some questionnaires that can be used, uh, that will define it fairly, fairly clearly. How do we treat folks then if they're if this part of their brain has been affected? How do we get people to understand that yes, in fact, your brain? Well, in many cases, you can't. Uh, we even tried uh, we even tried uh, having people watch a video of themselves when they were very sick after they had recovered some to see if that would affect uh, their their understanding of their own illness. And in fact, it didn't make much difference. Uh, it really is a biological deficit, and the in in some instances people will take medicine if you can bribe them or encourage them. But in many cases, they will not take medicine unless they're put on some kind of involuntary treatment. Uh, we have a program under the Treatment Advocacy Center called Assisted Outpatient Treatment, or AOT, uh, and that basically says something like this. Uh, we know that uh, you've been in the hospital 21 times already, Mr. Jones. We know you don't take your medicine when you leave the hospital. We know that you cause great problems for your family and in the community and threatening other people when you're not on medication. Therefore, when we discharge you this week, we are going to require that you continue taking the medicine as a uh, in order to live in the community, as a condition for living in the community. And if you don't take your medicine, we have the legal right to bring you back to the hospital. That's what assisted outpatient treatment's all about. And in those states that are using it, we have shown in studies that it decreases rehospitalization, it decreases homelessness, it decreases violence, it decreases victimization. It really works. What are some other effective treatments for folks with major mental illness? Uh... Most people with major mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder require medication, usually an antipsychotic medication, as we have about 10. Sometimes a mood stabilizer as well. Sometimes an antidepressant as well. Uh, but what the medicine does is basically balances the chemicals in the brain uh, so that they are not experiencing the voices or the delusions, or at least they're not experiencing them as much. It's very much the same way, Mary, as treating diabetes. In diabetes, the medicine we have, insulin and other things, don't cure the diabetes. What it does is it balances the chemicals so that the person no longer has the symptoms. That's really all we're doing with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder because we don't fully understand the causes yet. But the medicines are reasonably effective in most cases. There's a small number of cases, including my sister, who really didn't respond very well to the medications we have. But that is usually less than 10% of all the people with these illnesses. In addition to medication, what else is effective treatment? Well, you have to pay attention to the needs of the person. Uh, they need uh, housing. Uh, they need rehabilitation. 
many people with severe mental illnesses, when they are on medication, are capable of working at least half-time uh, or part-time, uh, but we provide very little opportunity like that. Uh, they also need support, uh, supportive therapy, if you want to call it that. Uh, people with any chronic illness can benefit by having someone to meet with to talk about the problems of living with it. Uh, these are nasty diseases. They're severe diseases. And the more they can learn about managing their own illness, the better they do. And what role does substance use play in the dysregulation for folks that have schizophrenia? Well, substance disorder? abuse is a, is a huge problem uh, for people with severe mental illnesses, as well as being a huge problem for people without severe mental illnesses. Uh, and it's not surprising that many people with severe mental illnesses uh, will gravitate toward alcohol or uh, various street drugs as a way of uh, making life tolerable for them. So substance abuse is a major problem. And if you have someone with a severe mental illness and substance abuse, you really need to treat both. And if you, uh, uh, substance abuse, as, as we know, is not easy to treat. So that these people tend to be more difficult to treat, and they tend to not have as good an outcome. In, in reading your book, I was also um, kind of compelled with the different um, studies that have been done around, around violence, around folks that, who are um, seriously mentally ill. And you mentioned earlier that people who are medicated do not have a higher rate of violence than any other part of the population. But what is the rate of violence for people who, who are not medicated? For that small number, it's about 1% of the, of the people who have severe mental illnesses who are really dangerous on a day-to-day -day basis. They account for approximately 10% of all the homicides in the United States. In the book, I talk about 5%. In fact, there was a study that came out of Kentucky a year ago uh, that uh, really fixes it at 10%, and that's consistent with some of the studies out of Europe as well. Um, and almost always these are cases where someone has committed violence because, for example, if you have paranoid schizophrenia and you think that the woman across the street is sending rays into your brain um, and that she is trying to kill you, you may try and harm her as a way to protect yourself. So almost always these episodes of violence are caused by the psychotic thinking, by the irrational thinking of the person who has the disease. Is, well, if, what country treats um, people with schizophrenia and people with bipolar disorders the best? Where is the best treatment found for folks? Well, if I were to develop schizophrenia or bipolar disorder next week, uh, I would have told you a few years ago that I would have gone up to British Columbia because at that time Canada generally was doing a little bit better and British Columbia in particular was doing better. I, I would no longer say that. They've gone downhill also. I would go to Europe and I would eat, probably either go to the Netherlands or the Scandinavian countries. Uh, generally, they tend to do better. No one does a great job, uh, but is, as a matter of fact, they're, they're probably the best. And we'll be right back. If you have any questions, give us a call after this station break. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to The Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Dr. E. Fuller Tory about um, the current state of affairs, if you will, for folks who are experiencing bipolar disorder or who experience symptoms of schizophrenia, and um, basically how over the last 30 years now that we have gone from um, institutionalizing people and sending them away for long periods of time to really um, creating a whole other system, the criminal justice system, to take care of them. And in doing this, somewhere we started with this idea that people have a right to be ill. And um, I've certainly worked with a lot of people who say people have a right to treatment. And there still is this whole um, debate over whether somebody has a right to be ill or somebody has a right to treatment. 
What are your thoughts, Dr. Tori? Well, first of all, I think I, I want to compare people with severe mental illnesses, uh, which is a brain disease, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, brain disease, with Alzheimer's disease. And the comparison is useful because Alzheimer's disease, we recognize that most people with Alzheimer's disease lose their awareness of their illness, and therefore we have to provide treatment for them. Sometimes that involved a, a locked nursing facility or whatever, but we recognize that they're not fully responsible for their own illness on it. Schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, for about half the people, it's the same situation. They have a brain disease that impairs their ability to think about themselves, but we have great difficulty in providing the treatment that's needed because we invoke civil liberties. We say, well, people have a right to be ill. Well, I can tell you if I hope someone will uh, involuntarily treat me if I ever develop these diseases uh, because I don't want to be homeless, I don't want to be in jail, I don't want to be on the streets, etc., etc. Uh, the civil libertarians and uh, organizations uh, have involved with that have made it very difficult to treat people in many states. Uh, the laws are so strict that it is almost impossible to get someone in the hospital. As one of my colleagues has said very often, it's easier to get someone in Harvard than it is to get them in a hospital. Uh, so that our, our, our concepts of civil liberties has confused our ability to treat people who don't know they're sick and who badly need treatment. And when we think about, um, you'd mentioned how the L.A. County Jail was one of the biggest now, quote, um, psychiatric facilities in America. California has very strict laws regarding commitment as well, don't they? California was one of the first states that really went in this direction. They passed a very strict law in 1969 called the Lanterman Petrus Short Act, and that makes it very difficult to get in a hospital and extremely difficult to keep someone more than 17 days. And in fact, in California, we saw the first really bad outcomes starting in the early 1970s, where it was very clear that this, for many people with severe mental illnesses, this was going to be a disaster. And it has been a disaster for about half the people, and uh, we still see it. It's gotten worse and worse and worse uh, as we go along. Having gone to nursing school in the early 70s, I can attest that having spent time as a student nurse in a psychiatric hospital, it was not a place I ever wanted to go back to, and um, I didn't find it to be a comfortable experience at all. And, you know, obviously there were, there were reforms that needed to happen. I think just the general attitudes of the staff needed to change. But also in having worked with folks with co-occurring disorders, I see so many people who have been victimized, who have been left, you know, filthy on the street, and it seems like people have a right to dignity and they have a right to treatment and they have a right to be um, productive, functional people. And it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that, you know, we've, we don't have hospital beds, but we have jail beds, and we don't have, you know, facilities for people with mental illness, but we have facilities for people within the criminal justice system. Well, I agree with you completely, Mary, and, and you're right. State hospitals were not nice places, uh, although they could become so. And, in fact, New Hampshire State Hospital, uh, when I last visited uh, in the what, late 1990s, uh, was a nicer, was a better uh, treatment facility than almost any private hospital in the United States. So it's possible for to make a state hospital into a good treatment facility, 
and some of the state hospitals indeed have been made in that direction. Uh, but on the other hand, to just empty out the hospitals and wish people well uh, without making sure they get treatment once they leave the hospital uh, is really going from the frying pan into the fire uh, and has been, uh, we, we have served these people very badly, as you say. Well, and it's also my observation that what happened with deinstitutionalization is that what people then tried to do was recreate the structure of the state hospital within the community so people even if they were in the community, they were still isolated from the greater community, and they were still kind of put in this maintenance mode, if you will, of being psychiatrically impaired. And, and for many of these people that we emptied out of the state hospitals, we have put them in kind of equivalent institutions in the community. Many of the older people were moved to nursing homes uh, where, in fact, they had less freedom than they had in the state hospital. Um, Many of them were put into large group homes um, in New York State. Some of the group homes have two and 300 people. And you walk in them, and I've been in some of them, and you say, how is this any different from the hospital they were in? Uh, well, in fact, in the hospital, it was more going for them and more treatment than they're getting in the group home. This kind of brings us to the whole concept of um, recovery. And I know within the addiction arena. Recovery is a big part of, of people's dialogue, and it's a big part of what people expect. And what about recovery from mental illness? What are your views on that? Well, I think it's important that people have hope, and I think it's important to recognize the fact that many people with schizophrenia can recover to the point where they can live in the community on medication and can work at a part-time job, and a few can work at a full-time job. I think that's important. On the other hand, the whole recovery movement for people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, I think, has become a bit of a fad and has given the illusion that most people can recover completely. Most people with schizophrenia cannot recover completely, and I think it's important to recognize that fact uh, and not, pe- not make people feel guilty that they can't recover completely uh, because of the nature of the illness. So recovery is fine, uh, but it does require medication in most cases, uh, and recovery is a relative term, um, and it's it's a mistake to try and give the impression that most people can completely recover because they can't. Well, and it's interesting because the, the debate still rages in terms of, um, you know, consumer-driven treatment versus, quote-unquote, professional treatment. And actually it's still raging in the addiction profession as well. So how do we bridge that gap? Well, a lot of the consumers uh, who have been involved in uh, the recovery movement uh, have, I think, mistakenly emphasized the fact that they recovered, therefore everybody should be able to recover. Now, we know that between a quarter and a third of people who develop the symptoms of schizophrenia initially or bipolar disorder initially do recover and don't get sick again. We know that, that that's been true all along. That's not new at all. It's the other three-quarters of the people that we're concerned about, and a lot of the people who have had these diseases can be useful, but many of them who have gotten involved in the movement themselves deny the need for medication and say, you know, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can do it. That's that's serving people very poorly. When we think about um, people with mental illness, obviously the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, which is 
now NAMI, has been one of the been in the forefront of education and trying to help um, decrease stigma and advocacy. Um, can you share a little bit about your experience with NAMI? Well, I've been involved in NAMI for many, many years, and I think at the local, at the state and local level, I think they've done a good job, and I'm especially impressed by their family-to-family program, and that is a series of uh, lectures of education for families who have a uh, ill family member so that they can learn more about the disease. And I would recommend any family who has a severely ill family member to contact their local NAMI group. Uh, and you can do that by going on the National NAMI website, which is www.nami.org, N-A-M-I.org. Click on your state, and then you'll get a list of the local groups and then ask about the family-to-family program. Uh, that has been really the best thing that NAMI has done. Um, one of the books that we use at Westbridge for our families is something that you had written a while ago, and it's and it's called Surviving Schizophrenia, a Manual for Families, Consumers, and Providers. And um, that has been very helpful, and it's very practical for folks. You've also written a similar one for um, families who have... Um, manic depressive illness or people that have manic manic depressive illness. In addition to family to family, what are some other things families can do or people with mental illness? I encourage families to learn as much as they can, and that's why I wrote Surviving Schizophrenia, which is now in its fifth edition, uh, and thank you for mentioning it. Uh, And I find that the more the families can learn about the illness, the easier the management becomes. It's never completely easy, but the families that seem to have the most trouble are those who don't understand the illness, don't understand that it is a brain disease, don't understand the needs of their family member on it. That's why I think learning as much as they can, and secondly, if they're advocacy types, then becoming advocates for better treatment. Uh, this can be done through NAMI, uh, probably can be done more effectively through the Treatment Advocacy Center, uh, which we started 11 years ago. And uh, we have many, many families that are very strong advocates for improving the services in their states. And we work with them to try and change the laws and improve the services. And, again, the website for that organization is www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org, all one word, Treatment Advocacy Center. At the Treatment Advocacy Center, do you have public policy statements that people can review? Do you have um, how to go and talk to your local congressman or senator? Uh, not so much the congressman and senator. There's a lot of information in terms of how to try and make your local services more responsive on it. Uh, these are, by and large, state problems. Uh, it would be easy if we could simply go to Congress here and get them to pass changes, but you're really dealing with a state issue. And we'll be right back for our final segment with Dr. Tory. If you have any questions, give us a call. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is our final segment with Dr. E. Fuller-Torrey, and we're talking about America's failure to treat the seriously mentally ill, and we're also talking about effective treatments and how to um, work with families. I think one of the important things that um, we really need to state is that it's really important for anyone to develop a relationship with someone who has a mental illness and oftentimes that relationship can be used to help leverage treatment or it can be used to help um, leverage um, people taking medication. Um, and, and, I, and I often think that doesn't get talked about enough. So I just want to put that plug in for the relationship. Um, Dr. Tori, what about research? What is research telling us about mental illness? 
and the treatment. Well, research, Mary, is kind of the bright spot. Uh, we now have the ability to study the brain of people with these diseases in a way that we could only dream about a few years ago. And that has produced much more information in terms of the nature of the brain disease, the parts of the brain that are involved, and has opened up some new possibilities for treatment. Uh, so I have been in this business really since 1970, and for the first 20, 25 years, I must say it didn't seem to be going anywhere at all. But in the last 10 years, it's really taken off and is very exciting, and that's what I really spend my day on is managing some of the uh, exciting research that is being supported by the organization that I'm involved in and uh, trying to keep up with what's going on uh, because it's changing almost on a daily basis. So what do we know today that we didn't know five years ago? Well, we know much more about uh, the parts of the brain that are involved. We know that there is a genetic predisposition, uh, but we now understand very clearly that it's not a genetic disease as such. It's like most other chronic diseases in that if you're born with certain genes, you're more likely to get the disease if you're exposed to factor X. And like many cancers or diabetes, we don't know what factor X is. Some of us have our suspicion. Uh, so that the genes themselves won't give you the disease. You have to also have the genetic predisposition plus something else. We also know that there is, for example, a inflammatory process going on, uh, very much like there is in multiple sclerosis. And so we're starting to use different kinds of medications that haven't been used before to see if that will help the disease process. An inflammatory process for folks that have uh, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or both? It appears to be for both. And interestingly enough, some of the genetic data, the genes that have been most prominently found in the many, many genetic studies that have been done in the last three, four years, the genes that are most prominent are genes that are involved in the inflammatory process uh, so that it's starting to fit together a little bit better than it used to. Um, is it possible that this is caused by a virus? Well, that happens to be my own research of viruses and other infectious agents, including parasites. Uh, I'm not uh, promoting it as the answer, uh, but uh, uh, I've been involved in this now for a number of years, and we do have uh, some fairly strong evidence that at least in some people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, there are infectious agents involved. Uh, we actually have some treatment trials going on, uh, using medications that are effective against the infectious agents uh, to see if they will improve the symptoms of people with the disease. And uh, one of the preliminary studies that we've just completed was indeed positive. So uh, I'm very optimistic that out of the research going on, uh, we're going to develop better treatments than we've had so far. Is there any research that um, supports environmental factors other than um, like a bacteria or virus? Are there other things in the environment that can trigger? There is some research suggesting that in uh, women who undergo starvation in pregnancy, that the person has an increased chance of getting schizophrenia later on. Uh, there has been some research that exposure to cannabis uh, and or other heavy drugs will cause the disease, that still is not quite clear. There's no question that once you develop the disease, if you're abusing drugs, it tends to make it worse in, all, in most but not all cases. Uh, but in terms of causation, I think the data is still quite weak that uh, cannabis or other uh, drugs actually cause the disease. 
Is there is there any um, research that supports the kindling effect of psychosis? For bipolar disorder, there is indeed, and that's been a major uh, a major theory, and especially for bipolar disease. I don't know of any data for schizophrenia that supports that, uh, but it does appear that for developing bipolar that uh, a series of small uh, problems, uh, deficits in the brain, insults to the brain, uh, may eventually kindle and produce the full disease. And is there any evidence that shows that um, periods of psychosis um, cause brain disease, cause brain damage? That still remains to be seen. There's no question that when you have schizophrenia, you have brain damage, and it's suggested that the longer you go untreated, that you may get more damage to the brain, but the data on that's not very strong. Because one of the things that we observe is that when folks are young and they get medicated early, um, the, I don't know, the effects seem to be much less. That you know, It's almost more of a hiccup than a huge road bump that people get back to school, they get back to work, they don't have as many um, problems in relationships when they're treated early. I think that's probably true, and common sense would tell you the earlier you treat it, the better your outcome will be. We are actually supporting a very large study just started in Australia to see whether you get people who are in the early stages of psychosis, if you treat them with fish oil, can you get a better outcome than uh, than otherwise? And these are some of the kinds of examples of research going on along these lines. Um, I think that it's in some ways it's a very exciting time for folks and for families because we do know that there are treatments that work. We also know that um, the state Medicare and, Med- and federal medic state Medicaid and federal Medicare systems really aren't supporting what works and that it's important for families and anyone who's interested in this to really start talking about effective treatment because we're not talking about spending more money. We have the money. We're just talking about making it worthwhile. Oh, that's absolutely right. And, and everyone says we need more money, but in fact we've shown in some of our studies that there is probably enough money out there to treat people if we use the money correctly, but we've uh, used it very poorly. I think, and oh, I forget who it was, but one of the uh, people that you reference in your book was receiving um, like $700 in disability plus Medicaid plus something else that they were getting monies for. Um, and if you were used that money effectively, the person probably wouldn't be in jail. I think that's absolutely right, and our, the system that we have set up uh, is totally dysfunctional, both at the state and the federal level, and we need to make massive changes. Dr. Torrey, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, Treatment Advocacy Center, www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org, uh, and I'd be happy to respond to any questions. Thank you so much for being our guest, and you're welcome to visit us in New Hampshire whenever you're coming through. It's my pleasure, Mary. Have a good week, everybody.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.